This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Uh, we're honored to welcome Robert Kuttner back to Politics and Prose for his latest book. Uh, Kuttner is, is really one of this country's leading economic scholars, um, especially in terms of progressive economic thought for, you know, since the 80s and before, co-founding the Economic Policy Institute in 1986, and with Robert Reich and Paul Starr co-founding and editing American Prospect magazine in 1990. Uh, throughout the years, he has also written and edited for many publications, including the New Republic, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post. Uh, he teaches social policy at Brandeis University and has also published 11 books, the most recent of which is Can Democracy Survive Global Capital? So throughout his career, he's mapped the changing shape of labor relations, the loosening of regulations, and the worldwide spread of neoliberal ideals. And in this book, he looks at where that's left society around the globe, uh, which to put it really quickly before he goes into more depth, is in kind of a, a problematic place uh, where a downwardly mobile working class across political orientations and country borders finds itself scrambling for answers on how to better a slipping lot in life. Uh, now, what may cause some to build a progressive critique of globalization as a method of economic disenfranchisement may lead others toward a nationalistic scapegoating of the foreigner at large. So we're very happy for Robert Kuttner to be here to help us pick through all of these issues. And please join me in welcoming to Politics and Prose. That was great. Thanks. I, maybe I can skip the talk. Uh, <laughs> thanks to all of you for coming. I don't know whether it's a good sign or a bad sign that so many people I see in this audience are friends, but special thanks to, to, to friends for coming out. Is this on? Okay. Closer. Closer on mic. Okay. So um, by way of introduction, uh, all of my work in one way or another has addressed uh, variations on the following question. How do you reconcile an economy that is in large part a market economy with a strong political democracy and a decent distribution of income and life chances? Because obviously the first principle of capitalism, uh, one dollar, one vote, is at odds with the first principle of democracy, which is one person, one vote. And. Uh, I look at this historically. I look at this in different periods when there either was or was not <clears throat> a tolerable balance between the market, capitalism, and uh, other aspects of society. And um, the, the book actually, the work on this book dates to about 2007. The original title was going to be uh, Capitalism, Globalism, and Democracy. Uh, a nod to the great political economist Joseph Schumpeter, whose book was titled uh, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. And I began feeling in that era that globalization, what the economist Danny Roderick calls hyper-globalization, um, of the sort that became prevalent in the 80s and 90s and beyond, was crowding out democracy and was leading to a backlash. And then, of course, a year after that, the collapse of 2008, happened. And uh, the reaction to hyperglobalization and the effect of hyperglobalization on the ability of the nation state to housebreak capitalism 
led to a right-wing backlash in country after country after country. I put the book aside three times to work on other projects, and then when things turned critical, I moved the book back to the front burner. And um, Trump, I think, provided the explanation uh, point. But not just Trump. Brexit, Orban, Erdogan, Kaczynski. Uh, this is not just contagion or coincidence. It's a, it's a common systemic uh, malady. And so in the book, I do kind of a deep dive into economic and political history to try and understand where this came from and how we might get uh, a balanced form of society and the market back. And um, I really start this inquiry in, in, after World War I. So after World War I, the people who tried to put the system back together, they got just about everything wrong. Uh, the first thing they got wrong was they assumed that a defeated Germany could pay for the cost of the war through what was known as reparations. And of course, that was delusional. Keynes came to prominence uh, writing a great book called Economic Consequences of the Peace in 1919, where he virtually predicted everything that happened. And in Germany, after futile efforts to uh, pay reparations, Germany in 1923 goes into hyperinflation, the middle class is wiped out, and the seeds are sown for Nazism. In, in Italy, uh, parliamentary government is discredited, Mussolini becomes a leader. And meanwhile, in the economic part of the arena, you have this, uh, on the one hand, effort to restore the pre-World War I world with high interest rates and austerity economics, and in the other ring of the arena, you have absolute license for speculative capitalism. And this roller coaster ends tragically in 1929 with a crash. And then what's interesting is that, as always, um, economic grievance, economic distress can go left or it can go right. And uh, in January 1933, the same month that Adolf Hitler becomes chancellor, uh, Roosevelt is putting together his cabinet. And I think events since then have pretty well demonstrated that Marx, expecting that workers of the world would unite, uh, mostly got things wrong because in country after country after country, um, workers look to nationalist, ultra neo-fascist leaders. They don't unite with other workers in other countries. And so if you compare what was happening in Germany in the 30s with what was happening in the United States in the 30s, you realize that we got very, very lucky that uh, in, in February of 1933, you may recall, uh, Roosevelt was giving a speech in Miami, and an assassin named uh, Giuseppe Zangara fired five shots point blank at Roosevelt, missed, hit the mayor of Chicago instead, and if Zangara had been a better shot, instead of Roosevelt, uh, we would have gotten John Nance Garner. And John Nance Garner, the president, uh, the vice president-elect, uh, would not have given us the New Deal. So uh, Roosevelt ushers in a period in which the state and the market are in tolerable balance. The state, the democratic state, really is able to housebreak capitalism in a broad public interest by the activities of the government itself, by empowering trade unionism, uh, and by substantially regulating the financial part of the market system. And this goes on not only during the New Deal era, but it goes on during the war 
when uh, the unemployment rate drops from about 14 percent on the eve of World War II to zero percent or one percent in the first six months of the war because of all the massive public investment. And uh, capital is even more tightly leashed during the war, and labor is even more empowered during the war. And so we come out of this period with a very anomalous kind of managed capitalism, which many of us grew up thinking of as, as normal. It really wasn't normal. It was very unusual for the political forces and the economic forces to play out in such a way that the normal power of capitalists in a capitalist economy would be repressed in a very constructive way. And the consequence of this is for the 30 years after World War II, we have a growth rate of 4% a year and the economy becomes more equal, demonstrating that efficiency and equality, far from being at odds with each other, are complements. Same thing happens on the other side of the Atlantic. The uh, leaders uh, who are in power in the 40s and the 50s had recognized the catastrophe of the interwar period and had resolved that never again is mass unemployment going to lead to uh, fascism and war. So on both sides of the Atlantic, there is this understanding that you need to harness capitalism in the public interest. You might want to call that democ a social democracy. You might want to call it progressivism. And there were differences in different countries, but the model was essentially uh, the same. So my generation, uh, your generation, many of you, grew up thinking that, well, hey, this is just the way things are going to be from now on. And I think we underestimated the power of uh, finance, the power of wealth, the power of capital in a society that remains basically capitalist to turn that wealth back into political influence. So what happened? Well, at Bretton Woods, the economic uh, convention of 44 nations in the summer of, uh, of 1944, led by Keynes, uh, the people at the Bretton Woods Conference decided that the international economy had to have ground rules that made it possible for each domestic economy to have full employment. You could not let speculative capital place bets against the currencies of countries that were growing too fast or that were nationalizing too many industries or that were doing things that capital would not ordinarily like. And one of my favorite little sub-chapters in this book is a section called A Tale of Two Socialists. And the two socialists in question are Clement Attlee and Francois Mitterrand. Now, Attlee becomes prime minister, first uh, majority labor government in the UK, in July of 1945, defeating Churchill, the great wartime leader. Why does he defeat Churchill? Well, he defeats Churchill because ordinary Brits are just tired of the privations of war. And uh, in World War II, Britain had lost a quarter of its national wealth and uh, it's about to lose its colonies, and it's flat broke. So what does Attlee do? Well, Attlee decides to build a welfare state. Attlee decides to create the National Health Service. Attlee decides to have massive reinvestment, not just in, uh, in reconstruction, but in a more socially just society. And you would normally think that there would be a flight from the pound 
but the ground rules of Bretton Woods prohibited that because the whole point was to create space in which individual countries could construct their own social contracts. Well, fast forward to 1981, Francois Mitterrand is elected president of, of France, the first socialist president with a working majority, and resolves to pursue a very left-wing program, a lot of nationalization, a lot of public investment. But between 1945 and 1981, the ground rules of the global system have changed. And financial markets start betting against the franc. And the franc starts plummeting. And the French uh, defensively institute controls to the point where ordinary French people going on vacation have limits on their ability to use their credit cards. And there was a fierce debate within the Socialist Party about do we double down on controls? Uh, this was ridiculed by the centrist as the Albanian solution. Albania being a completely closed economy. And after about two years of trying to defend uh, the program, um, Mitterrand caves in and appoints a centrist uh, leader, uh, Jacques Delors, as uh, the, the head of the austerity program, rigueur, and rigueur becomes de rigueur. Uh, and austerity becomes the response to international capitalism attacking this effort to have a kind of socialist experiment in one country. So between 1945 and 1981, the ground rules change. The Bretton Woods system is eviscerated. And um, the conservatives who are then in power <clears throat> deliberately use a kind of hyper-globalization to make it more and more difficult for nation states to manage capitalism. And the thing feeds on itself. Uh, the conservatives who take power, beginning with Reagan and with Thatcher, aggressively move to uh, make globalization even more intense so that it's more and more of a constraint on the ability of an individual country to have high labor standards or high env environmental standards or to have effective uh, regulation of uh, finance. And then something really needless and tragic happens. Uh, the center-left parties, my other favorite chapter in this book is a chapter called The Disgrace of the Center-Left. Instead of saying, wait a minute, this is not okay, we have a whole other strategy we're going to propose. In the 90s, what happens? We got Bill Clinton in the United States. We got Robert Rubin, who goes from being Clinton's fundraiser to being Clinton's chief architect of economic policy. We have Clinton dividing the Democratic Party by insisting on going forward with the NAFTA agreement, which was George Bush one, uh, George H.W. Bush the first uh, policy. Two-thirds of the members of the House of Representatives voted against it, two-thirds of the Democrats. So Clinton splits the Democratic Party in order to pursue NAFTA. And uh, Rubin not only becomes the architect of this form of hyperglobalization, but he also becomes the architect of the deregulation of Roosevelt's scheme for keeping financial capital in its box. And this is not just about ideology, this is about corruption. So if you look at the career of Robert Rubin, uh, he goes from being uh, co-CEO co of Goldman Sachs to being uh, Clinton's chief economic advisor to being Secretary of the Treasury 
1999, he manages to get Glass-Steagall repealed. Glass-Steagall was the landmark law that prohibited commercial banks and investment banks from being in the same company. And then when he gets Glass-Steagall repealed, he becomes one of the top guys at Citigroup, which then uses the repeal of Glass-Steagall to create a conglomerate. Meanwhile, on the other side of the pond, uh, Tony Blair, uh, who worked very closely with Clinton, is the first labor prime minister in a generation of Britain. And he moves the Labor Party to the center. He purges a lot of leftists from the Labor Party. Margaret Thatcher, <clears throat> when she retired from political life and uh, becomes Baroness Thatcher, she was giving an interview. I quote this in the book. And the interviewer says, what do you think your greatest achievement was? And she thinks for a minute and she says, I think my greatest achievement was Tony Blair. <laughs> and so you have, you have nominally center-left parties uh, getting in bed with finance, just like center-right parties had done. Same thing in Germany. Gerhard Schroeder, uh, conservative social democratic prime, uh, prime chancellor, um, deregulates uh, finance, uh, increases uh, the uh, regulations that make it easier for uh, industry to have low-wage labor, uh, did things that the conservative government never would have done, and uh, precipitates a split in the Social Democratic Party. The, the left wing of the Social Democratic Party is so disgusted with Schroeder that it breaks off and forms uh, its own left party, the Linkspartei, and so that in the election in 2005, when the Greens and the Social Democrats and the left party have a majority in parliament, they all are so at each other's throats that they can't form a government, and Schroeder becomes uh, the junior coalition partner of, of Mrs. Merkel. So the fact that the left um, throws its lot in with the center and fails to offer an opposition program means that when it all hits the fan in 2008, and ordinary working people find their livelihoods being destroyed by this brand of globalization, where do they have to turn? Well, uh, very much as in the 1920s, they turn to the far right. And to add uh, to this toxic brew, um, you have refugees and immigrants. Uh, it's very difficult to tell local working people whose living standards have been eroding and when you are compounding the damage with uh, a 10% uh, unemployment and austerity programs, it's very difficult to persuade local working people to open their hearts to refugees. It's, it's asking too much. It's hard enough when things are going well economically. I don't think it's coincidental that in the 1960s, when things were going much better economically for ordinary working class white people, uh, it was possible to persuade white people to accept the civil rights revolution much harder when their economic livelihoods are going down the drain. And I'm not saying that as a matter of morality. I'm just saying that as a matter of practical politics. Uh, if you are Hillary Clinton and uh, you are taking honoraria from Goldman Sachs, that name keeps cropping up, and uh, not really doing anything of significance to address the downward mobility of, of white working class people. And you then ask them to be accepting of immigrants and 
accepting of the right of transgender people to choose whatever bathroom they want to do, they, they want to, uh, that's a hard sell. And what you get is you get Trump. Uh, here's a statistic that's in the book. In the election of 1996, when Bill Clinton uh, ran for re-election against Bob Dole, if you look at counties that are um, below median income on average and are at least 85% white, Dole and Clinton, Bill Clinton, split those counties just about 50-50. If you look at what happens in 2016, Donald Trump carries about 650 of those counties and Hillary Clinton carries two. So this is partly about race, it's partly about antipathy toward other, but it's partly about economics. And that's what makes it really difficult to sort out and really difficult to resolve. All of this stuff gets bound up together. Um, so people ask me, well, uh, can, give us some hope. <laughs> uh, what's the answer to your question? Can democracy survive global capitalism? And uh, let me try and respond to that question in, in this fashion. Um, if you go back to the period after the war, this anomalous period, this harmonic convergence, we had tailwinds. We had the success of the New Deal. We had the triumph of World War II. We had a country that's ordinarily anti-government, valuing government. We had a strong trade union movement. Uh, we had all the fruits of that public investment powering the post-war boom. We had the Cold War coming along, which created the Pentagon as a kind of surrogate industrial policy in a country that doesn't believe in industrial policy. We had the Cold War, meaning that we kept tax rates on wealthy people rather high all the way through the 1960s. And um, if you think that this was simply a natural, normal uh, consequence of uh, rebuilding after war, which a lot of economists will argue, particularly re regarding Europe, look at the mess that they made after World War I. It doesn't automatically follow that you get uh, economic progress from the rebuilding after a, a war. So yes, that, <clears throat> that generation had uh, tailwinds, and we have headwinds. But we also have Donald Trump. <laughs> and uh, Donald Trump is rather double-edged, it seems to me. On the one hand, uh, Trump is, is the emblem of the fact that uh, you deprive working people of their livelihoods they will give up on democracy. They will uh, give up on uh, decency. They will vote for a thug who's their thug because they want to poke a finger in the eye of the establishment. Uh, but uh, Trump is a particularly incompetent thug. And uh, it seems to me that looking forward, uh, I think this blue wave, I think it's real. Uh, I think the Democrats are likely to take back the House. And I think at some point, the Republican Party is going to be terribly whipsawed between a desire on the one hand to stand by its man and on the other hand, real terror of what could happen in 2020 if they don't dump Trump. So I don't want to try and pl play crystal ball here, but I do think that the, the political circumstances are potentially quite auspicious for a progressive resurgence. And um, uh, I think there is a, a program 
that could be put forward by a progressive Democrat that could command majority support. I've been thinking about what's happened to the millennial generation. It's, it's really the most stunted, screwed generation in the history of this country. I mean, look at what we had, and look at what somebody who's 25 or 30 years old is facing. College debt, unaffordable housing, uh, crappy jobs, uh, no pension plans, uh, roulette game uh, about whether you're going to have decent health insurance. And it seems to me that the political candidate who leads a movement for millennial justice, if you will, could, could well be the next president. And I think if you had a serious program of public investment financed by uh, reversing the Republican tax bill, you could have World War II without the war. You could have massive investment in infrastructure. You could have investment in green transition. That could produce a lot of good jobs. So I think there's real potential for a turn of the wheel in a, in a more progressive direction. And I think that almost has to start in the United States. I think it's very hard to imagine this starting uh, in, in Western Europe. So as always, if the project is to contain capitalism so that you preserve some of the benefits, uh, the innovative benefits, the entrepreneurial benefits of a market economy, but you leash its more toxic antisocial tendencies, that has to take strong democracy. It has to take strong leadership on the one hand and strong social movements on the other hand. And um, I don't think that's impossible. I think it's up to us. I don't think it's guaranteed. But um, I think of a favorite line by the Italian radical uh, Antonio Gramsci, who was imprisoned in the 1920s by Mussolini. And Gramsci said, pessimism of the mind, optimism of the will. Now, the will has a kind of 30s uh, resonance that I don't particularly like. So I prefer to translate that as pessimism of the mind, pessimism based on what we know, and optimism of the heart uh, based on our hopes. And it's up to us to turn those hopes into political reality. Thanks very much. Questions, comments? This might be slightly off course, yes. but um, how concerned should our children and grandchildren be about the national debt, and what are your thoughts on that in general? Uh, everybody hear the question? There was a guy who passed on to his reward a few months ago named Peter G. Peterson. He's a billionaire hedge fund guy, and uh, private equity, actually, to be precise. And Peterson tried to scare all of us silly about the, the national debt. I think there are a couple of things to keep in mind about the national debt. Um, one is how big is it? The other is what are we using it for? So if you're going into debt to invest in things that the country needs, like infrastructure, like green transition, um, you can tolerate a good deal of debt. It's the difference between going into debt to buy a house and going into debt to go on a credit card binge. At some point, um, the debt gets too big. Let me give you some numbers. Uh, Britain, after World War II, had a debt equal to 240% of one year's GDP. And Britain did OK. Um, United States, after World War II, had a debt of about 120% of 
one year's GDP because of all the war debt. And after uh, three decades of solid growth, the debt came back down to about 25% of one year's GDP, not via austerity, but via prosperity. That was my previous book, uh, a sort of a brief against austerity. So if you're going to spend $1.5 trillion and increase the national debt in order to give rich people a tax cut that does no economic good whatsoever, that's a really dumb use of debt. If you're going to take the same trillion and a half dollars and have a reinvest in America program or write off some college loans so that young people can have a chance, that's a good use of debt. So, you know, I would start getting worried if the national debt we're maybe 150% of GDP. Right now it's about 100% of GDP. So I don't think, I, I, I think making the debt per se the issue takes the spotlight off of the real issues. Yes. That was terrific. Thank you. Um, how do we deal with what looks to me like disinvestment? Um, all the money is going into the financial system and that's where it stays. I mean, that's what private equity does. They buy a company, they extract as much cash yep. as they can, uh, they pare it down, and then they try to sell it off, and then it goes bankrupt right. because it can't pay the debt. But that money doesn't get invested in some other no, it goes productive into the pockets enterprise. Of private equity dudes. Yep. That's right. So how do we deal with that? Okay, let me let, let me give you a three-step program. For you know, you know, you know the Steve Martin bit, how, how to get a million dollars and and pay no taxes. First, get a million dollars. So, so step step one, elect a progressive Democratic president. Step two, elect a working Democratic majority in Congress. Step three, make all of this garbage illegal. We, we did it once. We did it in the 19. There was there was no private equity in the 1940s because uh, um, the securities laws were very tight. And the idea that you can't put the genie back in the bottle, we put the genie back in the bottle after 1929. All it takes is salutary financial regulation. And private equity exists because of three different loopholes. If, if you organize a company, you don't sell shares uh, uh, to the public, but you, you call it private equity, and you, you, your shareholders are redesignated limited partners, they're basically shareholders, then you don't have to disclose anything. You can do the whole thing in the dark. And then if you run the whole thing on borrowed money, you can take a tax deduction for the borrowed money. And then you can pay yourself exorbitant dividends, uh, which you're leeching out of the operating company. Well, all three of those things could be illegal. All you got to do is pass a law. So uh, the, the, the hard part is the politics. You, and you the need, Supreme Court. Yeah, but... Um, Yes, that's look. I'm I'm not a magician here. I'm right. <laughs> trying to trying to sell books here, but uh, I'm not I'm not going to solve everything tonight. But but I but I do think electing a progressive president with a working majority in Congress, that's the hard part. I think this group tonight in the next hour could design the program, uh, getting the right leadership, getting the right political movement, getting the right uh, Congress. That's the hard part. Thank you. You're welcome. You got more people on that side. I'm doing it. Hi. Much of the history of the 20th century in this country was using government to be a uh, counterbalance to the excesses of pri private wealth. Yes. 
And that produced the prosperity that you described Precisely. through most of the middle years of the century. But that was a period where most of wealth was intangible things, large physical enterprises and factories and all. There were many fewer realistic, safe places for capital to be moved outside the US. So we were able to control it in a way that I don't think we can today. I'd love to be able to, but when so much of wealth today is in intangibles, it's in intellectual property, when there are a lot of places in the world that it's profitable to move that capital um, in a way that it wasn't in decades past, how can we do what we did in the 20th century, which requires that we be able to control capital and prevent capital flight out of the country where we just lose control of? Well, it's a very good question. Uh, in, in fact, um, an awful lot of capital where the profits are nominally booked in a tax haven or they're nominally booked offshore, uh, the real economic activity happens right here in the United States. So there's not as much capital flight as one might think. In fact, we are a net importer uh, of capital. Um, and secondly, one really good way to not have to rely on the fickle uh, decisions of the private sector is to use public capital. In the progressive era, we, we had public banks. We still have a state bank in North Dakota. Uh, we had cooperative banks, and we could have them again. There was a whole mutual sector of uh, the American financial industry that was owned by its depositors, and that money could not flee. So again, um, I think what you're saying has some validity to it. It makes it a little bit harder, but I think it's possible to have ground rules that leave our society with plenty of capital to be reinvested at home, and if that turns out to be wrong, you can always have public capital. I think it would be good all by itself to have more public capital, where instead of uh, relying on funny money privatization schemes, the government invests the money directly. I mean, the, the, the dirty little secret of this era is that public institutions turn out to be a lot more efficient much of the time than private institutions, which is why the right wing keeps trying to kill public institutions. It doesn't want to have its ideology be shown up by reality. Yeah, that was very well laid out, boy, to do that much in that short period of time. But what, in other words, even as you take the group of people in this room that listen to you, all of us intellectually would go, that sounds terrible and so forth. But the reality is, even the people in this room have a vested interest in sort of the the, the corruption of the system as it exists now. And the, the point I'm getting to is how are we going to bring people into the level of change that is actually necessary to do the type of things you want to do? And it's, it's got to even be more than, than Roosevelt did. So how, how are we going to engage those who, who really need to say, I've got to step back and let this thing somehow, even if it's not perfect for me to go forward. And I, I don't know about that. I think most people in America 
are really not benefiting from the corruption in the system. I think the corruption in the system is mostly benefiting very wealthy people. And I think there are some big, simple, symbolic things one could do that could bring practical change to the lives of, of, of regular people. You could wipe out a lot of student debt. That would get people's attention. That's not complicated. Uh, you could do that by rescinding some of the tax cut that the Republicans just uh, enacted. Um, y you could um, have a either uh, a Medicare buy-in of the sort that Jacob Hackers proposed, where, where you make buying into Medicare cheaper and better than anything the private sector has, in, ha has on offer. That would be a way of getting to universal health insurance maybe in two steps rather than one steps. I mean, a lot of this isn't even all that complicated. And, um, but I think the other thing that this requires is it requires organizing on the ground, and there are people who are very good at it. We're seeing more organizing this year than we've seen in a long time. And it requires political leaders who are very skilled at narrating the struggles of ordinary people and explaining the relationship between the struggles of ordinary people to all the pathology in the system. Now, Trump did it in a very counterfeit way, but people were so disgusted with uh, elites that people were prepared to hear that. And the story that he was selling was basically that, look, the same globalists who are selling you out, who don't really care where your job goes, these are the same people who want to take away your gun. These are the same people who want to think it's okay to kill your unborn child. These are the same people who don't respect your church. These are the same people who think birds are more important than your job. And when people are losing their livelihood, that crap resonates. So you have to have a story that is both rooted in reality and that gives people some hope. Otherwise, you get Trump, and we haven't been getting that story from, from most of our leaders. I think there are leaders out there who know how to do that, and I suspect one of them is going to be the next Democratic nominee. Um, one of the ideas for dealing with climate change and global warming is uh, tax and dividend. Tax carbon and distribute the money, and dividends are also in the agenda in terms of a universal basic income, which a lot of people are talking about, expanding the ideas of the Alaska Permanent Fund and right. people like Peter Barnes. And, right. Uh, so I'd like to hear your comments about universal basic income as a broad progressive populist platform. Yeah. I don't want to give up on the idea that people want and need jobs. Uh, um, that is, a job not only provides income, it provides dignity, it provides a sense of craft, it provides a sense of self-worth. And I keep thinking back on this remarkable period around 1940, where a lot of the economists of that era were just convinced that we had reached the limit of the economy's ability to provide jobs, that there was technological unemployment, and along comes the war and people who hadn't graduated high school suddenly had good jobs. So I think there's a huge amount we can do to provide a lot more good jobs. What if we just said with a stroke of a pen, uh, anybody in the human service field, taking care of old people, young people, sick people, 
gets at least $35,000 a year. What if we did that? Um, there's certainly enough work that needs to be done. Now, I would top this up, as the Brits say, top up the tank. I would top up the tank with some semblance of a universal basic income, but I would not count on it to provide most of the income. And I think the Alaska Permanent Fund is a wonderful example. Uh, Forty years ago or so, there was a renegade Republican governor in Alaska, and when they struck oil on the North Slope, instead of giving it all to the oil companies, uh, he proposed a policy that was passed by the Alaskan legislature that every Alaskan citizen gets a dividend every year, gets a piece of the action, and that's two or three thousand dollars per person. And in some native uh, communities, that's the biggest single source of cash income. Uh, nobody doesn't like a check from the government. And no right-wing Republican governor has been able to repeal that. So Barnes's idea today is that you take anything that's generated by the commons, the internet, or patents and trademarks, or spillovers from um, NSF or NIH, and you levy a charge on that, and that goes to fund the same kind of check that everybody would get in the mail. I like that a lot. But I think the people who feel that uh, universal basic income could, could somehow substitute for a job, I think, I think that's risky, and I, I don't think it's impossible to have full employment. Um, let me uh, thank you for a quite interesting uh, talk. Uh, I always have to say I'm, I'm not from the United States. I'm from the Caribbean, and I grew up in the Netherlands. Uh, so this leads to certain, a certain amount of questions. Um, the first question is I, I largely agree with the analysis of uh, you know, the time what is called the great class compromise, the social welfare state, you know, 1945, 75, 1945-80. Mm -hmm. you know, a political scientist who just came out with a book called it The Great Exception, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, but I think also the fact of the matter was that, at that during that time, you did have a working class population, both in Europe and in the United States that was much more to a certain extent radicalized, right? They were facing the horrific consequences, well, basically what China's facing now, right? These horrific consequences of beginning industrialization, the brutalization of that. And I think that ideology played an important role. So that's the first thing that I want to say. The second thing that I want to say is what I missed out of your presentation is somewhat of a I'm just referring now to, to anybody who knows these, these names, Barrington Moore, right? Uh, the um, Reichmeier, Stevenson, Stevens, Capitalism and Democracy. Uh, and they point out how in a democracy, right, uh, the most anti-democratic group are great landowners for all type of reasons. But they, they are closely followed by merchants, industrialists and stuff like that. So this leads to the question, right, that if in the West, if in the West, that basically what you have is a quite anti-democratic um, elite classes, right, who now have gotten their hands on power, and that in a belief that somehow these, these wealthy elite and powerful elite classes are going to be quite at ease with a broad-based, redistributed, you know, democratic, equal can, democratic can, can system, I, can, they will not I, tolerate may, it. May I, may I stop you there? Because I, I agree with you. I mean, if this were a, a university symposium, I would be citing Barrington Moore and a lot of other uh, great scholars. But I think you hit the nail on the head, as we say. The, the point is that uh, wealth 
great concentrated wealth tends to be anti-democratic. And the only way to contain it is to have very strong democratic institutions, not just political parties, but trade unions, to keep wealth in its proper place, to make the income distribution, the wealth distribution, less unequal to begin with. And to the extent that it is somewhat unequal, wealth doesn't get to buy power. Thanks. Yeah, Bob. Yeah. Um, as you oh know, I'm less interested in the economic than in other issues. Oh, sorry. So then in the mic. Sure. I'm less interested in the economic issues than some of the others. And we're dealing with a problem that I think you would have to deal with as well that we can't answer yet. And that is that we think we can reach out to enough of a left to win this next election, including a majority in the House, if not the Senate. But doesn't there also have to be more of a grassroots organization? So, you know, when we were in Ohio, in a certain unnamed college in Ohio in the fall, we heard Reverend Barber, and who is compelling. But how do we reach, and we don't know how to do it in our level of work either, how do you reach out to um, especially the white working class that we are not culturally that comfortable reaching out to? And again, I don't well, know the not, answer. It, it's not um, our job to reach out to people with whom we're not culturally comfortable. It, it's our job to welcome organizing um, of all kinds. I, I think the organizing that we saw, beginning with the Women's March and uh, on into uh, the, the, the blue wave in, in Virginia and on into the special election in Pennsylvania and on into the thousands of people who are being recruited to run for offices at every level, this is really ex extraordinary. And thank God it's happening as a grassroots phenomenon because there aren't very many people in this room who can make it happen. It's the kids who are making it happen and it's women who are making it happen. And it's African Americans who are making it happen, and that's just that's just what what should be happening. That's that's why one can be a little bit hopeful. Another another Oberlinian heard from so, Philip Bob. I know the answer to this question generally is this read is a the, setup. Is read the is read the book. <laughs> uh, but just a question. So you you explained the the difference between Clement Attlee and Mitterrand as I think the breakdown of the Bretton Woods. Uh, consensus, and then you explain the the breakdown. Uh, you explain Tony Blair uh, because uh, Margaret Thatcher destroyed working class solidarity, and Clinton because he divided working class uh, the working class in the Democratic Party. So, but was it inevitable? Was global the kind of globalization and the financialization of the economy inevitable in the after the post-war boom? That is a great question. Um, I think a lot of what happens in history is structural, and a lot of what happens in history is accidental. The fact that the bullet missed Roosevelt, that was accidental. Um, the fact that um, after 30 years of Bretton Woods, the dollar ceased being able to be the global currency, that was structural. The fact that Nixon was otherwise engaged at the time that Bretton Woods broke down, um, that was accidental because that's what, I have to read this just because it's so much fun. Hold on one second. <clears throat> so this is, this is from the Watergate tapes. And uh, yes, 
from the Watergate tapes. So this is a transcript, and this is uh, Bretton Woods is falling apart, and uh, Watergate is rising around Nixon's ears, and this is an exchange between Nixon and his chief of staff, H.R. Bob Haldeman. Haldeman, did you get the report that the British floated the pound? Nixon, no, I don't think so. <laughs> well, Hald Haldeman, well, they did. Uh, Nixon, that's the valuation? Yeah, Flanagan's got a report on it here. Well, I don't care about it, nothing we can do about it. Do you want a rundown? No, no, I don't. He argues that it shows the wisdom of our refusal to consider convertibility until we get a new monetary system. Oh, well, it's too complicated for me to get into. Burns, the Fed chairman, says Haldeman, expects a 5% devaluation against the dollar. Nixon, yeah, okay, fine. Haldeman, <laughs> Burns is concerned about speculation against the lira. Nixon, well, I don't give a shit about the lira. <laughs> so, right? So, Nixon, so this, you'll get a laugh out of this book, too. So, Nixon was otherwise engaged. What's the point? The point is that some people would say that the breakdown of managed capitalism was uh, structural, it was destined to happen because of technological factors. Other people would say that Bill Clinton was an opportunist. And I think there's a fair amount of truth in both things. Uh, Bill Clinton did not have to embrace NAFTA. That was totally optional, totally optional. It was a way of sucking up to Wall Street. And um, by the same token, even though um, labor had gotten its clock clean for three straight elections, Blair did not have to move nearly as far to the right as he did. But Blair thought by making an alliance with the city, Britain's version of Wall Street, uh, that would be clever. He'd kind of preempt the center and take, uh, take all that money away from the Tories. And um, Schroeder was kind of a consummate opportunist. What was the richest today, all three of them are rich men. Uh, Garrett Schroeder's the richest. So um, it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. We lost some of the tailwind. And I don't think it has to be this way today. But, but the problem is that structurally, in a capitalist economy, there's a long-term tendency for wealth to concentrate. There's a long-term tendency for wealth to try and seize political power and to undermine democracy, because democracy has this nasty habit of trying to rein in wealth. But it's not, it's not inevitable. Uh, people can make a difference. And sometimes they make a difference for, for decades. Oh my goodness, Marcia, hello. <laughs> Bob, if you had the Congress of your dreams, mm. can you name two or three specific laws you would like them to pass to deal with all this? Yeah. Um, I would um, spend probably um, at least a half a trillion dollars a year uh, rebuilding infrastructure and beginning a serious green transition and along the way creating a lot of good jobs and um, a lot of uh, based in USA technology. And this is an occasion to say something that I meant to say. Trump has a kind of half-baked, racialized version of economic nationalism. There's a progressive version of economic nationalism that involves a lot of public investment, a lot of pride in our country uh, that produces decent jobs. And we have to take the ugly version of economic nationalism away from Trump. Uh, my, my little tete-a-tete -tete with Steve Bannon uh, began because Bannon thought there could be some kind of an alliance 
between reactionary economic nationalism and progressive economic nationalism. There isn't. Um, the second thing I would do is I would do a massive debt relief program for, for people who got uh, stuck with, with college loans and um, uh, a restoration of, of free higher of public education. Uh, the third thing I would do is I would do uh, a massive uh, strategy of making all human service jobs decently paid jobs. So that would have immense practical effect. It would have immense symbolic resonance. It would, na national health insurance is more complicated because it's harder to do technically. But those three things, and that's on my list too, but I didn't put it in my top three. Uh, those, those three things, unlike all of the token stuff that Democrats have been proposing lately, those would actually change people's lives. Those would restore some faith in the power of government to do good things. Those would bond a whole generation of voters to progressive Democrats. So it's a, it's a circular problem. Uh, first, you gotta, first, you gotta get a working majority. Secondly, you gotta, chief, you gotta get a chief executive who's not gonna sell you down the river. And I think if we don't get those two things, then we're going to keep having this reinfection of a tendency of uh, disaffected people to, to back neo-fascists. Hi. So do you have time for one more question? I, uh, let's see. We can take this one last I have time question. for two. Okay. <laughs> so but you only get to ask one. So the, the glory days of the United States, I think everybody here could probably agree, was after World War II when China was supine. Uh, Japan was supine. India was not a, a meaningful economy. Yep. The, everybody was supine, basically. So um, maybe it's addressed in, in your, your book, but this is a wildly different landscape. And mm -hmm. I'm curious to know if, if you take that into account, we, we're operating in a different environment today than, than ever before. Well, it's a very good question. Uh, you know, China made a decision that it was going to invest... Uh, 40% of its GDP in becoming the world's great industrial power. And China decided to do that as China. It, it, it was not affected by the fact that there were other countries who were ahead of it. It, it played by its own rules, and it happened to be a dictatorship, which made it a little bit easier to make these decisions. But I think the United States, even with the kind of globalization that we have, retains enough policy autonomy um, that if we elected a president in Congress who decided to reinvest in America, who decided to have a more just society, w we still have enough levers of power that, uh, that we could do that. And maybe that's a good note to end on. So thanks, thanks to all of you for coming out. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.